This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. This, this special bath, this ritual cleansing, and only after having sacrificed a goat and, and sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Like uh, Old Testament priests, they were part-time butchers on the side. They were, they were bivocational, so to speak. And then also only after setting the second goat free, a, a scapegoat that carried the sins of the people off. Not only that, Jewish tradition uh, holds that the priest, before he would enter in, he would tie a rope around his waist. And you know why he had to tie a rope around his waist? Because if he went in and come to find out he didn't scrub hard enough or he didn't spill enough blood and he like died, like his buddies could pull his body back out. So he tied a rope around. But why, why all the baths? Why, why all the blood? Is really, also, why the bath before the blood? Why not take the bath after the blood? I hope he did. David kind of answers that question for us. He he starts by asking a question in Psalm 24. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall stand there in the presence of God? And he answers in verse four saying, he who has clean hands, he, he who's innocent, and in a pure heart, who acts out of pure motives, who who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who who doesn't worship other gods, and who does not swear deceitfully, but whose words are true. If you think about it, like, that's not real good news for us, is it? Because, like, we we are stained by sin, aren't we? We are stained on the outside. Our hands are dirty, guilty of sin, We're stained on the inside, our hearts defiled, desiring things that go against God's will and his word. Worshiping other gods and kneeling at other altars, we've built and saying whatever it takes to get whatever we want with no regard to truth as defined by God. And here's the thing, no matter how hard you scrub, no matter how much you wash, you will never be able to cleanse yourself from that stain of sin. No amount of blood from any herd of goats will ever be enough to atone for your sin and make up for what we've done. Truth be told, though, did you know that the old covenant ritual cleansings and sacrifices, they were never really intended to do that anyway? They were there to point to something else, weren't they? They pointed to a greater cleansing. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, pointing to a new and living way, he says, for us to ascend the hill and enter into God's presence, a way that was no longer limited to just one person one time a year, but a way made available to all people at all time. But yet we're quick to restrict, aren't we? We're quick to restrict. Here's an example. I, um, this summer... I have, had, um, I have had the joy of taking both my boys, Ethan and Sean, to their very first Cubs game at Wrigley Field. Uh, I kind of consider it like a Father's Day present to myself, if we're being honest, and it was awesome. And uh, side note, uh, the Cubs won both games. And I say that because if you come across tickets, if the Cubs make the playoffs and you come across tickets and you're like, I wonder who should sit in these seats to give us the best probability of winning the game. I just want you to know that we have experience in this. And like, I would love and serve you and the whole city of Chicago, at least the north side, sorry, Charlie. And uh, I'm just saying I would do that. 
But uh, Ethan, he noticed, Ethan notices things. Sean notices things too. But what Ethan noticed uh, when we're waiting to get in line, he noticed there was a special entrance there for people to go in. And he noticed that uh, we got there early so we could just check it all out. He noticed that during batting practice, there were some people down there on the field. And he noticed, you know, there wasn't just the one first pitch that uh, somebody famous, it was actually uh, a woman from the Chicago soccer team that threw out a really good first pitch. It was a strike. But there were like a couple of others beforehand. And he was like, how did they get to do that? Why didn't, why, why didn't we get to do that? And I knew enough from my sports marketing days back at Motorola that, that they had a special ticket. One that they either paid a whole lot of money for or one that they won from a contest. Because not, not just anybody gets down on the field on game day. It's restricted. Now, before you feel too bad for Ethan, um, he got his special ticket that same day. Uh, after the game, my friend John, who's the organist at Wrigley Field, uh, he actually led worship here uh, a summer ago. Uh, he, he took us upstairs after the game. Uh, we got to see the organ. We got to see the press box. We got to meet Jeremiah Paprocki, the voice of Wrigley Field. Uh, we got to meet uh, Jim Deshays from Marquee Sports. It was, it was pretty cool. Ethan got a special ticket. Sean didn't, but um, I forgot to text John that game but we've got a special ticket too, don't we? We've got a special ticket. This, this new way, our special ticket is who? It's Jesus. I was really hoping you were gonna get that one. It's Jesus. Who offered himself as a once and for all sacrifice, declaring himself in John 14 to be the singular way to God to be the singular source of truth, to be the singular giver of eternal life, saying nobody is able to come and stand before the presence of the Father except through me. Because of who he is, he is the one with clean hands. And because of what he has done, having ascended the hill on our behalf, a hill outside of Jerusalem where he was nailed to the cross. And it is by the shedding of his blood that we are cleansed of our shame and forgiven of our sin, our crimson stain removed and now washed white as snow, amen? But this new way is also living. Jesus, he defeated death. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And where today he sits at the right hand of the Father, victorious and alive as our great high priest over the house of God. Right? No longer referring to a physical house, but to a people. We are the house of God. Because he as the Son ascended, the Spirit of Christ descended. And now God, he resides within us individually and among us collectively. And it is by this new and living way in and through Christ that we are able to ascend the hill, that we are invited and welcomed into God's presence, granted special access to something previously unavailable to us. Guys, we get something better than going on Wrigley Field on game day. And you know what the best part of this whole thing is? You don't gotta tie a rope around your waist when you walk in. You don't need a friend outside waiting to pull your body back out just in case something happened. Because we enter into God's, confidence, into God's presence with confidence, it says. Knowing we are welcomed. That's true no matter who you are or what you have done. 
That is true no matter how far you have strayed or how long you've been away, how many times you've failed or how far you have fallen. We know that to be true because this is why John is able to write that anyone, anyone without exception who receives Jesus, receives the cleansing and the forgiveness, this free grace that he offers, Anyone who receives Jesus and believes in his name, the name above all names, the name to which every knee will bow and tongue will confess as Lord, has been adopted and accepted as a child of God. And it is there in Christ that we are not only reunited to God, our sin having separated us from God, but we are reunited to one another. In Christ, as brothers and sisters, Our father's children united as family. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, writes, only in Jesus Christ are we one, are we united. And only through him are we bound together. He says, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for us, not on what we have done. That is our identity. That is who we are. We are not a random gathering of individuals, whether this is your first time or you were here six years ago or you were here 14 years ago. We are not a random gathering of individuals. We are the body of Christ. We are family. That's the first reminder. Second reminder is our responsibility, how we live this out showing us three responsibilities we have to one another that make this time together uh, distinct and special and important. And what you're going to notice is each of the three begin with the phrase, let us. Not let you, singular, let us, plural, because these are not things that you can do alone. These are things that we can only do together. And our first responsibility is that we gather together as a church family to worship in God's presence. We gather to worship in God's presence. Look here with me, verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You were each invited here. Yes, I know you got a text from me about eight o'clock inviting you to prayer at 9.30. But you were invited by God before that text. You were welcomed into his house drawing near both to God and and to each other, all with a singular purpose this morning. And that singular purpose is worship, bringing him glory and praising his holy name. John Stott, he, he writes in his book, The Living Church, worship is the church's preeminent duty. That is why we gather. It could have been a real short sermon. It's just that. We gather to worship. Done. Let's go home. But while... Everyone worships. Worship in itself is not distinct to us. But what makes our worship distinct is both who we worship and how we worship. We gather to worship God and God alone. Why? Because God alone is worthy of our worship. There were people worshiping in Wrigley Field. Cubs are not worthy of our worship. Worthy of being cheered on, not worshiped. God alone is worthy of our worship. We come here seeking this this intersection, this coming together of the transcendent and the imminent, right? The the infinite and intimate God of the universe. That is who we worship, meaning 
Meaning worship, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about who? It's about God. Worship is not for you. Worship is not for us. Worship is for God. And that means worship is not about what is pleasing to you or our preferences, but about what is pleasing to God. That's who we worship. And the way we worship, and we sang it this morning, we, we stand with arms high and heart abandoned, free, standing in awe of the one who gave it all. That is how we worship. We worship with our entire being. We, we worship with our voices, with the, the songs we sing and the prayers we pray. We, but we worship with our bodies as we, as we stand, as we raise our hands. We worship with our ears, listening to the reading and preaching of God's word. We, list, we worship with our minds, focusing our, our attention on God and, and with our heart as the spirit stirs our affection for God. We, we worship with our, our mouths during communion and in our eyes seeing each other. We, we quite literally get to taste and see that the Lord is good because at its core, worship is a response. Worship, worship isn't a noun. It is not something you consume. Worship is a verb. It is something you do. Worship is about participation, not observation. Responding with a true heart, transformed by God's love. In full assurance of the faith in God, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil, guilty conscience, knowing that we are forgiven of our sin, free of shame, and bodies washed with pure water, an allusion to the symbolic washing of the stain of sin in baptism. We worship in response, and we worship to remember. And that means, like, no matter what you are feeling on a Sunday morning, no matter how awful your week may have been, it is important for us to draw near to God's presence together and to worship together, strengthening our faith in God and our fellowship with one another and forming us evermore into the image of Christ. That's our first responsibility. Our second responsibility is, is that we gather as a, as a church family to remember God's promises. And we gather to remember God's promises. Look here, verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, any roller coaster fans? Yeah? Life's a lot more like a roller coaster than a train, isn't it? Trains, trains take a relatively straight, flat, steady path. You're able to walk up and down the cars, maybe have a snack, take a nap, nice and smooth. I'm referring to Amtrak, not CTA. CTA is not that. That's this. It, it, we lived on a gravel road, and Jill's folks live on a gravel road, so the, the boys have always referred to it as the bumpy road. But a roller coaster, whole roller coaster's got hills and, and curves, and, and it's fast, and then it's slow. It, it twists and turns. It'll, it'll throw you upside down. It is wavering, but that's the whole point, isn't it? That's what makes it fun. If you don't feel your tummy twinging at the end, it wasn't a good roller coaster, right? Throwing up after a roller coaster is actually a great sign. That's like a 10 out of 10. So, so you better hold fast, right? That's why there's a, a harness 
that contains you. If there's no harness, that's not a roller coaster. That's something else. There's a harness that contains you. There are handles to hold on to with that death grip. And life, man, life is wavering, amen? Life throws some twists and turns at you and you don't get to see them coming like you do on the roller coaster. So God's word, and that is the harness that contains us. Like, like, a, like a baby wrapped up like a burrito, you wrap them all tight and snug because they feel safe. God's word is the harness that contains us and his, and his promises, those are the handles that we hold on to, right? Those promises, our hope is found in those promises. Our hope is founded on his word. That's why when we gather together confessing our hope, whether it is reading the word or remembering promises, reciting creeds, whatever it is, the reason we do that is because we are so quick to forget and we need to be reminded over and over and over and over again. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we recite creeds as confessions of our hope. And not just that, but we get to hear others confessing their hope as we remember that he who promised is faithful. And we especially need those reminders when life is wavering, when you are filled with questions and facing doubts. We gather to remember God's promises. And here's our third responsibility that we have to one another as a church family. It's to love God's people. Right, love God's people. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Bad habits are easily created and they die hard like John McClain. There were some here, I mean, we're talking just a few decades after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, there were already some who had developed the habit of neglecting to meet together. They, they, they weren't worshiping together regularly and, and like nothing's changed in 2,000 years. The same is true today and, and especially true after the pandemic. And, and like, let me, let me acknowledge real quick here, side note, um, there's valid reasons for not worshiping together for a season of time. Whether it's a new baby or shift work, uh, whether it is healing from an illness or healing from some past church hurts, right? You got that asterisk? We good with that one? It's not what he's referring to here. What he's referring to here is this belief that worship is individual and that it is optional. It's this belief that your presence or absence has no impact on anyone else. Whether you're here or not, what does that matter? I'm not hurting anybody. The thing is, passage says the exact opposite. It says that your presence is needed that your participation is necessary. And like, I hate to go all Jerry Maguire on you, but I am. Um, if you call redemption your church home, meaning this is the place that you worship, and you call us, this ragtag group of individuals, um, I think you referred to us as weird this morning, right? Strange and weird. If this strange and weird group of people is your church family, meaning we are the people who you worship with, then man, when you're not here, like we're not complete without you. 
We can't be who we've called to be and we can't do what we're called to do without you. And you know what that thing that we're called to do is? Love. We're called to love. That thing that Jesus said would be our distinguishing mark of his followers. Loving God, he says, and to love others, all others. Loving one another, obviously. But not just that, he he calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love those people God has placed in our lives. He even goes so far as to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Loving one another, he they says here, by, by serving one another through our good works, our love made, made manifest, made visible. Because what we know to be true about love, love is not just an emotion you feel. Love is instead a choice you make and an action that you take. And so how are you going to serve one another? How are we going to bear one another's burdens when we're not with one another? You can't. Because see, loving one another requires two things. It requires a lot of things, but let's talk about these two. It requires proximity, right? Being present with one another. And it requires vulnerability, being open with one another. It requires proximity and vulnerability. And so you can't meet someone else's needs unless you see the needs and know the needs, and that requires proximity. Likewise, your needs can't be met unless you allow others to see your needs and to meet your needs, and that requires vulnerability. He also says here that we go about loving one another simply by encouraging one another. And like, we could all use a big, heaping, helping, big old pot of encouragement, couldn't we? You ever said, man, you know what? People just been encouraging me way too much. Can I offer you some encouragement? No, nope, overflowed right now. I think you should give that somewhere else. I've never heard... If you ask someone, can I pray with you? Only once has someone told me no. Um, Could I offer some encouragement? No one's ever said no. We love one another by encouraging one another. But here's the thing. Um, How can you encourage one another when we're not with one another? You can't. Because you won't come alongside and encourage others unless you know they're struggling. And that requires proximity. That said, we could put an asterisk there. Let's just assume we're all struggling in some way at some point, and uh, you can offer some encouragement. But likewise, others won't come alongside you and, and encourage you in your struggle unless they know you're struggling, and that requires vulnerability. And so we come together, thinking about how we can best love one another, or as, as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, he says, He says, hey guys, let's see how inventive, how creative we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Let's go above and beyond going above and beyond. Let's do it. Let's let's go above and beyond in loving those in our in our church. When there is a need within the church, it should be met by the church. And by church, I don't mean the organization. I don't mean like always looking to the staff to take care of it. I mean, I mean looking to each other. We are the house of God. Loving those in our church, but also loving those in our community. That's why we started the pantry last year as a, as a group of us spent, I, I wrote in my notes months, but I really think we prayed for years, didn't we? About how we can consider, how we can stir one another within our church to love and good works for those in our community in need. And then as the day of Christ's return draws near, let us draw near. 
Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to each other, gathering together with a sense of urgency to worship God, to remember his promises, and to reflect his love. Now that we've seen uh, what, what makes worship for not us as a church, but for the church, now that we've seen what makes our worship distinct from the world, I want us to look at our unique expression of worship. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that our unique expression is better or worse than, we got three churches just at this street corner. You drive down Gulf Road, you see one like every five feet, I think. Uh, churches on Gulf Road is like Walgreens and CVS. Um, I'm not saying ours is better or worse. It's just, it's just different. It's unique. And so let's look at our Sunday morning liturgy. Uh-oh, I said a bad word. I realize that um, I use some words that when I say them, some things come to mind at times, like the word liturgy. And uh, they might not be good things that come to mind, depending on your, on your past church experience. But what I'm going to ask you to do is I want you to put uh, this, this, this view of liturgy you have aside. Tim made us put on imagination helmets last week. You remember that? Can we, can we like, is there some form of that? We can, 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 you, can you put your, th- put your thing on? This is really weird. I'm sorry. It was weird when he made us do it. Just put that thing aside. Put it aside. And uh, you, can, you can take whatever that thing you put on off. Liturgy is actually derived from the Greek word work for the people. It is, liturgy is an activity you are invited into. It is an action you participate in because worship is a verb. It is something we do. And while you may think our liturgy, our worship begins at 10, um, did you know it actually starts at 9.30? I don't know. We might have forgotten to tell you that. My bad. Our bad. Rob's going to cover that in announcements. Uh, we're going we're gonna to make up for that. It actually starts at 9.30 because, you know, our time together begins with what? It begins with prayer. Everything should begin with prayer. Not as a last resort, but as a, as a first move. Our time begins with prayer, praying together in the lobby at 9.30. And so I want to encourage you can, you, can you put that, that helmet thing back on? I want you to think of our worship services beginning at 9.30. Not 10. I'm, I'm half tempted to just change the website entirely and say 9.30. Not 9.30 prayer and 10 o'clock worship, just, just, just 9.30. We pray together. Today, we did this really cool thing. Um, we broke up into groups, and people went to different parts of the building praying for the sanctuary, praying over these seats, praying in the lobby, uh, praying over the kids' rooms. I don't know what we're going to do next week. Jason and Michelle will figure that out next week. Next week's about praying together, though, so I know we're going to be praying together. And then after that, you get, here's the best part. You got like 10, 15 minutes to grab some coffee. It's good coffee, ground fresh every Sunday downstairs. And then you have a chance to meet someone new to you. How do you know if they're new to you? If you don't know their name or you don't remember their name, they are new to you. And you have the permission to ask their name 100,000 times. At some point, maybe write it down. Because here's the thing. If, if this is your church home, I want you to view yourself as a host. I want you to view this as your, as your home. You are a host in your home, meaning you are welcoming guests into our home. And you are helping them make this their home. Does that make sense? Y'all just got a preview of like the next two weeks on praying together in hospitality right there. And then we enter this room. We enter the sanctuary. We enter this, this place of refuge. And we begin with a call to worship, uh, reading a psalm, reciting a prayer, signifying that our time together is both sacred and special. 
and marking our entrance into this time as we lift our voices to God, singing of him and singing to him. And then, then comes, I think, what is my favorite point of the entire morning. When our kids, they take off on a dead sprint for that door, right? And you notice how they don't wait to be dismissed, do they? They know what's coming next. They're not waiting for Georgie or Tim or Becca or Becca or whomever to dismiss them. They're going. What you see every Sunday is they take off and they're already through the door and you're like, I'd like to dismiss. That's the beauty of liturgy. They know what is coming and they're excited about it. They're anticipating what's going on down there. Rory Norland in his book, Transforming Worship, writes, the value of liturgy lies in its familiarity, in knowing, in anticipating. And what I want you to know, whatever your thoughts of that L word are, I want you to know our children love liturgy. You see it every week. Then after that, Y'all know what comes next, and some of you are like, I don't like what comes next, and that's the turn and wave. Used to be the turn and greet, and we, we like rein that in. It's just turn and wave. Just for the record, though, you are free to get up and go to somewhere else and say hi. You are also free to just sit there and give a little smile and nod. That's okay. And then after that, one of you will come up. George came up today, and, uh, and you'll read the preaching passage. I love how we stumbled onto this. I remember uh, one good Friday I was preaching from Isaiah and I wasn't gonna preach through in order. It was kind of a topical sermon from the passage. And so we read the, the passage before the sermon. I remember Chris afterwards saying, hey, that was really cool. Can we keep doing that? Been doing it ever since. You give good feedback, we listen. So we read the preaching passage. Then comes the morning's question from the New City Catechism, a 52-week catechism created by Tim Keller's church, Redeemer Presbyterian out in New York City. Again, another word that might bring things to mind, which is why we explain every week what that is. It is a way to provide clear and concise answers to questions of faith we all have. After that, I'll share maybe a pastoral announcement about new socks or where my family's at. And then we pray. We might uh, pray for our church. We might pray for our community, depending on our world, depending on what has happened that week. And we will also then pray for our time in God's word as we, we receive his word. We've heard it, now we receive from his word through a sermon. We then move into a time of guided reflection as we set aside time for the spirit to stir, right? Listening to the reading of God's word with an openness to the leading of God's spirit. And then during this series, we're going to add a new element of remembering. Remembering that he who promised is faithful. And we're going to remember that by reciting the Nicene Creed together. A creed written by the early church council to um, succinctly summarize the truths of who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do. Truths found in scripture and holding fast to the confession of our hope while hearing others confess their hope. And whether it is, uh, whether we are singing these truths or saying these truths, singing songs or reciting creeds, I understand while these are not coming from Scripture, we don't sing just the Psalter. What I need you to know is both the songs that we sing and the creeds we recite are founded on Scripture, aren't they? And they are helpful in growing our faith and shaping our belief. 
And then finally, we respond. We respond to God's grace and our encounter with his presence and his word. We respond by taking communion. We respond by lifting our voices. And last, but certainly not least, we respond with announcements. Announcements don't come after the response. Announcements are part of the response. That's why they're at the end, in case there is something for you to respond to. We'll help you to respond by by showing you a step that you can take to make redemption a place to belong, a place to grow, and a place to serve. You can respond uh, in, in your prayer requests that you share with us. And then we end with a benediction. The final response is we are sent back out into the world to reflect what it is that we have heard, to reflect God's love. And, and I hope you see everything that we do when we gather together is shaped by God's word. Each element in our service, whether it's the songs we sing or creeds we recite, the scripture we read, the sermons we preach, uh, the prayers we pray, or, or the, the meal that we share, each element is a verb, a verb in our shared liturgy, in the activity that we do together as we worship God together. Amen? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.